can you go to happy hour on that diet? Girls, this is a question I ask most anybody before they commit to any diet. Because all the time, I mean, especially as we're coming into the new year, I have people asking me like, what diet should I follow? Is intermittent fasting real? Should I hop on the keto train? What about high carb, low carb, carb cycling? Like all these things. And before I answer which is the best diet, I I throw out basically a question reflecting the sustainability of the diet. Now, y'all know I am a social person. I love me some happy hour, so that's why I gravitate towards just looking at a diet and deciding whether or not it is sustainable based on whether or not I can go to happy hour. Now, you might not be a happy hour fanatic, and if you're not, that's totally cool, but let's give you a question that does fit your social values. Like, can you go to your kid's birthday party and stay on this diet? Can you go the weekend and stay on this diet? Essentially, can you do the things you love to do and still stick to your diet. And I think this question of sustainability, when we are looking at what diet or what nutrition lifestyle we want to commit to is super important. And I think we undervalue the importance of it. So I've given this talk several times over the past year. I think I gave it five times last year. I'm about to give it again this upcoming weekend at a local conference. But I love giving this talk and and I think I love it so much because it gets people talking and I get various responses to this topic. I have some people who love this idea of acknowledging the social component of food and how this contributes to the sustainability of a diet. I have some people who are totally offended that I would recommend following the diet that makes alcohol or quote junk food something that is permissible, not and not only permissible, but just a part of your regular diet and lifestyle. Like one time I gave this talk and at the end I had somebody ask, do I really believe that about carbohydrates? Like how could I, as a registered dietitian, recommend somebody eat <laughs> processed carbs? And I was like, well, I'm not, first of all, I'm not sitting here like recommending and prescribing that you eat little Debbie's every Saturday. I mean, unless you want to like my sister-in-law. Hey, shout out to my sister-in-law. She loves her little Debbies. (laughs) But I mean, that's not the point of it. The point is, is that I value enjoying food. And so when we're looking at any diet, if you enjoy certain foods that are on the quote bad list, okay, labeling them as bad and cutting them off. And we know that doesn't work. So we have to find a way to live with those foods, enjoy them in moderation and make peace with them. And I think it's when we put them on the bad list that they start to acquire too much power and then we become like the kids. Like I always say, we if you look at my little boys and like no joke, we were at, we were at happy hour last night <laughs> and there was this line and they were all like hyper and running around and I said, okay boys, you guys can hang out in this area but do not cross this line because if they cross that line, then they started to, you know, interrupt other people's happy hours. So I wanted to keep them slightly contained in like an invisible cage here at the brewery. So we're hanging out and the boys are like, okay, okay. So they're playing this little game. And then all of a sudden they look over at me and they're like, this line, mama? And my youngest starts like tiptoeing his feet up to the line. And I said, yes, Ronan, don't cross that line. And he goes, oh, this line? He goes, but what happens if I do this? And he just like lifts his foot slightly over the line, doesn't touch the ground. So he's technically crossing it, but like not totally. And I'm like, Ronan, I said, don't cross the line. He goes, oh, I'm not crossing it, mama. But what if I do? And he kept pushing. That is our human nature. Like we do that as little kids. And I don't think we outgrow it. We want to know where the line is and how close can we get to the line? And when we do this with food and we draw hard lines and say, I cannot do this, we subliminally react to that 
and walk up to that line. And we say, oh, this food line, you can't have any sugar. You can't have any carbohydrates. Well, like, what if I have just a little bit? Or what if I, like, have it after 8 p.m. when no one's looking? Or what if I just, like, shut the pantry door and have, like, three peanut M&Ms really quick while nobody is aware? Like, we play with that line. So, anyways, we're going to get more into this. But, um, so, yeah, to that guy who was like, do you really recommend them? It's like, no, I'm not recommending you eat processed carbs. But I am recommending you find a way to live at peace with them where you're not afraid of them and they don't have power over you. Okay, so before (laughs) just went on a little rant there. All that to say, I want to be clear from the beginning here. I'm not here today to discuss what is the optimal or quote best diet that is best done on a one-on-one basis when you're filtering your nutrition philosophy through your values, your own biofeedback, your own situation, your own goals. So that is not what I'm here to discuss. I don't think that's possible to do in a group setting or from a mic like this, because what's going to work best for me is not going to be what's best for you, for your kid, for your spouse, your aunt Shirley, like everybody's so unique. What I am here to talk to you guys about today is how to create a case for the value in looking at a diet outside of just nutrient content. I believe in the value of enjoying food as well as the value of the social element of food. Y'all have heard me say this before that there are five love languages, but I think they forgot one. It's the sixth one and it's food. Food is the sixth love language. And so we have to learn how to work with that so that we're not self-sabotaging. After working in this industry for over a decade now, I've seen people fail over and over again. I failed myself because I didn't allow myself to value these other aspects of food. Guys, research backs it up too. It is shown over and over again that if we try to control and restrict food groups or calories, we can do it for a period of time, but there is a backlash. The pendulum does swing the other way. When we do this, we are more likely to binge and overeat the foods we restrict and are trying to control. So today I'm not talking about what's the best diet for you to follow. Rather, I want to provide a framework for evaluating popular diets that are out there right now from a more holistic view that you can share with your clients, with your friends, with your spouses. I want to empower you to evaluate what you hear and read instead of just taking nutrition information at face value because I know it can be so tempting. Like there's all this really cool nutrition information out there, which is really cool. I mean, I'm a dietitian certified nerd in ERD. (laughs) And I am here for that, but we have to know how to filter it through our own stuff because that's where food freedom, food peace, that's where all of that lives is learning how to evaluate things, become critical thinkers about the nutrition information we hear instead of just running and hopping on whatever latest train or fad diet train there is. So we're going to cover intermittent fasting, keto, detoxes and cleanses, and the vegan diet today. Lots of science coming at you, lots of fun nutrition facts, and this framework, but most of all this framework on how to evaluate them so you can decide if it's a diet that you want to follow. Hey friends, I just wanted to hop on here real quick and say thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your reviews. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for purchasing products off my website. Thank you for buying supplements through my online dispensary. Thank you for the messages telling me how this has impacted your life all of that, it keeps me going. It allows me to continue bringing you guys free content, which I absolutely love to do. There's really nothing I love more than coming in here in my closet next to all my favorite shoes (laughs) and talking to you guys. It means the world to me that this podcast gets to be a catalyst for you guys changing your lives. And by you leaving me reviews, sharing this, sharing it with your friends, supporting the products that support this podcast, it just 
just, it means a lot to me. So I wanted to say thank you. Thank you guys for sharing your inner awesome with me and know that I am super grateful. Okay, so I have a few objectives for today's show. I want to give you guys some of the research behind a lot of the common diet trends. So I'm definitely going to be citing some things. Guys, I've got over 30 studies cited on here, which will be in the show notes if you want to look them up. So we're going to break down the research, looking at the pros and cons of some of these major diets. And then from there, I want to provide you with a framework for evaluating these diets based on do they add or improve nutritional status, number one. Number two, what is the influence on your microbiome if you were to follow this diet? And number three, can I go to happy hour and stay on this diet? And that's the big question. So we're going to be looking at all three of these when it comes to some of the latest diets. Now, why this question? I already went off on a tangent about this in the intro, but I want to give you guys some stats. So why is it so important to ask questions like, can I go to happy hour on this diet? Can I get through the weekend on this diet? Can I go to my kid's birthday party and stay on this diet? Can I go on vacation and stay on this diet? Like, why are these so important? Here's why. It is estimated that 95% of diets fail and will result in lost weight regained within one to five years. That's a huge percentage, 95%. That study's been repeated a few times. So in other words, there's only a 5% chance of someone following a diet, losing weight, keeping it off, and being successful in the long run. Guys, something is broken. (laughs) Something is not working. If that's the stat we have, we're doing it wrong. Roughly 80% of people who lose weight will not maintain their weight loss. 80%. Again, super high statistic there. Dieting is a consistent predictor of weight gain. A study on 19,000 healthy older men over a four-year period found that one of the best predictors of weight gain over the four years was having lost weight on a diet at some point during the year before the study started. So (laughs) beyond like what you actually eat, beyond what you know, processed carbs, high carb, low carb, they found the number one predictor, consistent predictor of weight gain was having followed a diet. People typically lost five to 10% of their starting weight in the first six months. However, a third to two thirds of people on diets regained more weight than they lost within the four to five years. So again, it will work. Like that's when, when people ask me, just does keto work? And I'm like, well, define work. Like, will it get you to lose weight? Sure. Yeah. You'll lose weight, and and you might for maybe six months, but what happens after that? And here's one of the most troubling pieces of information that's really starting to show up in the science in the last decade. We are finding that this yo-yo dieting is harder on the body than just carrying extra weight itself. So this cyclic dying of like, this dying, <laughs> you think that was a Freudian slip? I meant to say dieting. This cyclic dieting, although it is, it's like we're dying. Our soul is dying every time we, oh, that's morbid. Anyways, <laughs> this cyclic dieting is something that really takes a toll on our body. So when we lose 10%, but then gain back 5%, or we lose 5% of our body weight and then gain back 10, this yo-yo up and down, up and down really takes a toll on the heart. We're showing that you have higher risk of weight-related comorbidities when you yo-yo diet and go through that cyclic cycle than if you were to just carry the weight and exercise. Yep. 
People in larger bodies who exercise have been found to be healthier than those in even smaller bodies that don't exercise. So I know that's so hard for our thin, obsessed culture to wrap our mind around, but I think it goes back to the power of movement and how our bodies were made to move and learning to find a movement that we enjoy is super important. And I would argue sometimes more important than figuring out the food stuff first. Like I think let's find ways to move our body in joyful ways because the food stuff follows that. When you're moving your body and getting exercise in a joyful way, whether that's walking, rock climbing, running, I mean, whatever it is for you, you can't ignore the food anymore because now your food is more than just something you access for boredom, stress, happiness. Like it's actual fuel for the movement you're you're moving into. So, okay, could go off a total tangent there. There's so much I want to talk to you guys about today. So stay focused, Jessica, stay focused. Okay, so we're talking about prioritizing sustainability of a diet. So how can we measure this? When I ask someone if they want to follow a diet, I, I really tie it back to their values. Like, how does this fit into the things that are most important to you? Does this diet improve your relationship with food? So one of my clients the other day wanted to start macro counting again. So I said, okay, let's add the macro counting back in. But here's what I want you to pay attention to. Does this improve your relationship with food? Because that was her overall goal was food freedom and being able to eat freely with her family. When we added the macros back in... It brought stress and anxiety and she felt enslaved to it. So no, it doesn't improve. So that's another question we can ask is, does this diet improve a person's relationship with food? Does the diet offer flexibility and life space? This is so important, guys. Like life happens in the game of life. Life will always win. Like your car will break down. You will run out of gas. You will be late to a meeting. Your kid will get sick. All of these things will happen. And that's just the day-to-day you know, inconvenient stuff. There will be big things too. No one gets out of life unscathed. And if we don't have a healthy relationship with food, first and foremost, it can make the game of life a heck of a lot harder because we don't have flexibility in our food patterns. So I'm taking all of that and cramming it into like more of a superficial question, which is, can I go to happy hour on this diet? Because I like happy hour. It's more fun to talk about happy hour than it is like you know, can you sustain this diet while someone in your family is sick and you're having to manage and take care of them? <laughs> I mean, that that heavy stuff, guys, I want to acknowledge it because it's there. And having a healthy relationship with food is so important because that stuff happens. Um, but for the purpose of the podcast, I'm going to keep it light because I want y'all feeling good, not depressed by the end of this. But I do want to acknowledge that that's a big reason why I push flexibility so much is because life is hard. And we have to know how to be flexible with our food. Okay, so let's dive right in. We're going to start with the keto diet. Most of you know keto is training your body to use fat as fuel. So it's going to be about 80 to 90% fat, 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrate, and as low as 15 to 20% protein. So here are some possible pros of training your body to use fat as fuel. You do see that initial weight loss. This is why people like it. They are pulled into it because most studies show that within two to six months, you lose weight. Now, that's not accounting. I just, I know I'm on the pros, but that's not accounting for like the long-term effects of it. But the initial weight loss with keto is there. We do know that keto is a therapeutic treatment for neurological disorders, and that's a whole nother medical nutrition therapy approach. But there are some benefits in that sense. And then it demonstrates improved insulin control in individuals with 
diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes. And this makes sense because we're reducing carbohydrates, so they're going to show greater insulin sensitivity because we're not stressing out the pancreas. I mean, that one makes sense. There's a possible reduction in ghrelin levels. Now, ghrelin is your hunger hormone. And again, this one makes sense to me because when we have a high fat content in our meals, that fat, that dietary fat is one of the most satiating macronutrients. I mean, think of the last time you ate a bunch of pizza. It was loaded with cheese, which is loaded with fat, and you're not hungry for hours afterwards. So with the keto diet, we're eating 80 to 90% fat, so it would make sense to me that ghrelin levels would be lower. And then the keto diet may be helpful for endurance athletes during exercise. Now, this one is super interesting to me. Uh, I am a sports dietitian, so I work with a lot of athletes, especially some of the more distance-focused athletes, runners, ultramarathoners, triathletes. And there's quite a bit of interesting research looking at using keto as a means to like prevent the bonk out. Now, I will say this, two things. One, if you don't have a healthy relationship with food, trying to do keto before a race is like the worst idea ever. <laughs> because if you, if you already get like pre-race anxiety, pre-race stress, trying to do keto is only going to mess with your microbiome more. So if that's you, don't even... No, like I'm going to just stop it right there. I would not recommend keto. Now, if you have a super healthy relationship with food and this would be more of like a science experiment to you, there is some interesting research on how training the body to burn fat as fuel for these longer endurance events has proved advantageous. I've done some cool work with especially a lot of my male triathletes here, and it's been really productive. Now, with that being said, they go on keto for a short period of time. It's like an eight to 12 week cycle as opposed to like a six to eight month commitment. We do it right before the event so that we train the body. They become keto adapted and then they get off of it. And I help support them in the transition because the transition is kind of icky too. When your body's used to burning fat as fuel and then you add carbohydrates back in, it doesn't feel good. Those of you who have done this before, you know what I'm talking about, but you feel bloated, you feel gassy. Sometimes it hurts. Like it's a rough transition. Kind of like it was a rough transition when you start keto and you switch your body. Um, you guys have probably heard of the keto flu, which is something that can happen when you transition from a carb-based diet to a keto-based diet. Okay, so those are some of the pros. Now, what about the cons? Is it really worth it? Biggest question here is sustainability. Following a keto diet is not totally sustainable for the long haul. Even those that are recommended a keto, keto diet for therapeutic reasons, like neurological disorders or having seizures they still follow it cyclically because we know it is not good in the long term. There's some long-term negative effects. So for example, research shows a decrease in bone mineral density for people that follow keto. There's an endotoxic effect on the gut. So if you already have an unhealthy gut, keto is probably not the best option for you. There's a possible micronutrient deficiency if we're not super careful. <laughs> like the first time I was introduced to keto, I'll never forget this. It was a brilliant man but he came in and he's like, Hi, I'm going to do keto, but I don't really know what to eat. I said, okay, well, what have you been eating? He said, well, I have an avocado for breakfast and chicharrones for lunch. And I was like, ah, like so void of micronutrients. So there's a higher risk of that. Reduced enzymatic activity for carb breakdown. And that's part of why it's so difficult to reintroduce carbohydrates back into the diet. There may be lipid panel changes. So you might see an elevation in your LDL, which is the not so great cholesterol or your total cholesterol. And then rebound weight gain and glycogen repletion. So again, going back to the first pro that I listed, which is that there is initial weight loss, we tend to see the rebound weight gain, something that's super common with keto. Okay, so let's look at this report card. Does keto improve nutritional status? No. 
it actually risks reducing it because we take so much off the permissible food list that it increases risk of micronutrient deficiencies. In fact, I've only had one client that followed keto and was really good about hitting her micronutrients, but this girl was committed. I mean, she was logging everything she ate. She was plugging it into a spreadsheet, tracking it, looking at her micronutrients. When she was low in potassium, she was finding veggies that didn't have carbs up her potassium. I mean, she spent hours working on this. Now, if you want to do that, like more power to you, you do you. But if you are like me and have like 900 things to do in a eight hour day, you probably don't have time for that. So I just think this nutritional status here, there's more of a risk of malnutrition than there is balanced nutrition. Does it improve your microbiome? No. We know that high fat content of foods have an endotoxic effect. So in the long haul, no. And can I go to happy hour and stay on this diet? I mean, I guess technically you could, but it's going to take a lot of work around. Could you go to your kid's birthday party and stay on this diet? I'm like thinking of what they have at the last kid birthday party I went to. Like, no, absolutely not. They're making like keto cupcakes now, but how, how weird would that be if you gave your kids keto cupcakes? Not healthy for kids. I would say no, not really. And I, I say that because, again, I've worked with so many clients who have tried this, and the number one complaint they have about keto is that it fails. <laughs> also, full, full disclosure, I tried keto, I think it was like two years ago when it was starting to get a lot of momentum. I was like, all right, I'm, I'll try anything just so I can speak to it. Oh my gosh, girls, I lasted no joke like 36 hours. <laughs> I was so hungry. I felt terrible. I was like, what? No, life is too short for this. Like I am, I'm grumpy. So yeah, anyways, I could not sustain it for more than a day and a half. So this one didn't show too well on our report card. FF, and I would say like a C minus for the happy hour question. All right, next one I want to talk about is intermittent fasting. This one is so hot right now. And there's different ways you can intermittently fast, uh, or I like to call it time-restricted feeding as opposed to intermittent fasting. There's like 12-hour fasts, 16-hour fasts, something called the warrior fast, which is 20 hours of fasting and then four hours of eating, alternate day fasting. So many different ways are popping up on how to intermittently fast or restrict your feeding. So some possible pros here. And guys, I've actually done a whole episode on this if you want to look back to it. I think it was like in the first... Oh gosh, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, But I think it was like back in March of 2021 that I did a whole episode on intermittent fasting because I did a diet debunking series. Yeah, okay, we'll put that in the show notes and check it out. Um, Some possible pros here. We do see reduction in serum cholesterol, triglycerides, and markers of oxidative stress. Those have been short-term studies, so we're not sure if that lasts or if that's an initial response to changes in dietary patterns. There's an increased level of insulin and leptin sensitivity in rats, in rat models. So that might be of interest to somebody that has dyslipidemia or is pre-diabetic. Some data shows benefits in individuals with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So again, if you have a medical diagnosis, there is research looking at how intermittent fasting might help with some of those metabolic markers. And then Here's one that's most interesting to me. Time-restricted feeding may affect host metabolism by altering the gut microbiome. So we may see some benefits from allowing the gut to rest in cycle with our circadian rhythm. This one I think makes the most sense to me on the possible pros. 
Because if we think of our gut, which is a muscle, and if we're working it out all the time because we're eating and we're constantly putting things in our body, it never gets to rest. And so they're finding this resting period provides space for the gut to heal itself and have healthier microbiota expression. So super cool there. Now, let's consider the cons. Is it worth it? Majority of this research is in animal models. We're starting to move into human studies, but a lot of it's in animal models. The research that is in humans is predominantly in males, which, ladies, we all know, our physiology is nothing like a man's. (laughs) Interestingly, they found that Intermittent fasting increases the parasympathetic response in males, but increases sympathetic drive in females. So what that means, your parasympathetic response is like your rest and digest response, whereas the sympathetic nervous system is really the body's fight or flight response. So (laughs) in males, this literally calms them down, whereas females, it is stressing us out. Taking that just a step farther for us females, it's estimated that 45% of women are already in a low energy state. So in other words, 45% of us are not eating enough to compensate for what we're asking our body to do on a daily basis. If we put time-restricted feeding on top of this, what's the likelihood that we're going to counteract that number? Super low, because now if I have these rules that I I have to wait till 11 a.m. to eat and I can't eat after 6 and I already struggle to meet my dietary needs, the chances of me becoming more nutrient void are super high. It also may increase visceral fat over time in females. (laughs) Total opposite of what we're trying to do here, right? We'll see reduced meals may decrease micronutrient intake, and it does not improve weight loss when compared to energy restriction and may actually promote weight gain because it leads people to that restrict binge cycle. So the cons here are pretty alarming to me. When I look at this as a whole, and this from the sustainability piece, like can I go to happy hour on this diet? This one, it is a little more sustainable than the rest. So if we look at this one's report card, intermittent fasting, does it improve nutritional status? No, because we're not adding any specific foods. Does it support or improve our microbiome? Yeah, sure. We There is interesting evidence showing us that it just might. So that's intriguing to me. And can I go to happy hour on this diet? This one is likely more sustainable because I could move the time window in which I eat. So yeah, maybe a little bit more sustainable than keto. I'll give it that. As long as you're still meeting your nutritional needs within the time that you're eating. (laughs) All right, let's look at the next one. Cleanses and detoxes. So these are going to be anything including fasting, drinking juices or similar beverages, eating only certain foods, use of dietary supplements or herbs, cleansing the colon with enemas, laxatives, or colon hydrotherapy, yes, that's a thing, (laughs) ew, or any other pre-packaged cleanses you may have heard of on Instagram or social media. Possible pros here with these detoxes and cleanses is that some results show weight and fat loss or improved insulin sensitivity and blood pressure just from the cleanses. Now, these studies are poor quality due to the lack of participants, design flaws, or they lack peer review. So they're not actually peer-reviewed studies. Also, the initial weight loss is likely due to the lack of calories as opposed to the actual detox itself. And most participants regain weight possibly more immediately after stopping the cleanse. And the only other pro here is that people claim to feel better. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, I did this cleanse and I felt so good? I mean, that's a pro, and I don't want to discredit how people feel better. But my question for you now in looking at the cons is, was it worth it? So we already know there's very limited studies 
showing that they are productive. Now, your body does have a super powerful detoxification system, your liver. So you don't necessarily need to buy products. We just need to take care of your liver to support the internal capabilities that your body already has. Like reason number 583 why your body is so amazing and it's beautifully designed. Thank you, God. You're amazing. (laughs) The juice cleanses can actually increase oxalate absorption, which can lead to oxalate neuropathy. Some juice cleanses could potentially contain harmful bacteria. And then laxative regimens can cause dehydration, deplete electrolytes, impair normal bowel function while disrupting native intestinal flora. So lots of cons there. Can I go to happy hour on this diet? No, you can't because you're on a cleanse and you're cranky and you're home and you're starving. Again, the one time I tried one of these, I didn't do anything. I stayed home and stared at Netflix for like three days and wasted my life. So not something I want to do again. How does it fare on the report card? Does it improve nutritional status? No, because we've taken out so much food. Does it improve or support your microbiome? No. And can I go to happy hour? No. So F's across the board. This is not one I typically recommend for these reasons. Okay, let's shift into the vegan diet. Some people are interested in the vegan diet because of the health benefits. Some are strictly interested in it for ethical reasons. Whatever your reason might be, Let's look at the possible pros and the cons. So vegan diet is going to be a plant-based diet with absolutely no animal products. So that means no eggs, no milk, no dairy, whereas vegetarian is going to have um, some of those products. Sometimes you have a pescatarian, which includes eating fish, but we're going to look strictly at the vegan diet right now. So possible pros. There is a great deal of research showing some of the benefits of following a vegan diet may lead to a lower BMI, decreased risk of type 2 diabetes, reduced blood cholesterol levels, rates of heart disease are lower among vegan men, not necessarily women, but vegan men, may lead to lower risk of certain cancers. And for many, this diet really aligns with their ethical values. So lots of research supporting benefits of this. And this makes sense because if you take away all animal products, what are you primarily eating? Plant-based foods. You're eating high, high intakes of fruits and veggies, which we know is really, really good for us. It's great for our microbiome. It adds all those micronutrients that we need. So yeah, it would make sense to me that there's a lot of health benefits to following a vegan diet. So is it worth it? There is a risk of low energy intake. So I struggle with this one. Y'all know I work with eating disorders and I get in this like bind where They want to follow a vegan diet for ethical reasons, and I get it, and I respect it, but at the same time, we're struggling so hard to meet their nutritional needs. And so when I tell someone with anorexia who's already scared of volume that in order to meet your 2,200 calorie goals, you have to eat this much salad, their eyes get so big because the volume is just massive. So there is a risk for not quite meeting your energy intake. Although it can be done, it's just going to take some extra education, a different perspective on what your volume or your your portions need to look like and going the extra mile in understanding how to meet your nutritional needs. Supplementation might be required to meet nutritional needs if you're on a vegan diet. And really the nutrition educate, this is, I I counted this as a con, because it takes time, but this is also why I have a job. (laughs) Nutrition education is vital when you're following a vegan diet. Because you are at higher risk for missing certain micronutrients, you've got to know how to get them. You have to know how to meet those needs. And so you're going to need help, resources, a dietitian in your corner. You're going to have to spend time meal planning and prepping and doing the homework to be a responsible vegan. 
like one of the main nutrients that is a struggle for vegans to meet their needs with is protein and because protein is going to predominantly be found in animal products well if we cut those out it's harder to get your protein now beans is an excellent way to meet protein needs if you're a vegan high protein high fiber it's they're wonderful but if you're a vegan and you don't like beans that's going to be a problem <laughs> or if you're a vegan and you you don't like soy or tofu we've got issues because now you're not going to be able to meet your protein needs or you're going to have to be eating a lot of nutritional yeast <laughs> So looking at the whole diet and deciding, okay, is this something that not only am I willing to cut out foods, but I'm actually willing to eat the foods that are a part of this diet. Other micronutrients that might be a concern are iron, zinc, iodine, B12, DHA, and vitamin D. Again, these can totally be met with a vegan diet. I mean, you can get iron from spinach and dark leafy greens. You can get zinc. You can meet your iodine needs by having iodized salt. You can meet your B12 needs with supplementation or having nutritional yeast, and then you can get vitamin D enhanced products. But if you're not willing to do that, then we need to look at the overall sustainability of this diet. All right, so let's look at the report card for a vegan diet. Does it improve nutritional status? Yes, totally. We're eating boatloads of fruits and veggies. <laughs> it does. Does it support or improve your microbiome? Mm-hmm, Totally. And can you go to happy hour in this diet? Yeah, you absolutely could. So this diet is one that is sustainable. There are a lot of benefits to it and something that I think could be more of a lifestyle. Now, if you look at all the diets I've covered today, (laughs) you'll notice the only one that wasn't a trend was the vegan one. All the other ones were essentially newer, sexier, sparklier diets that the diet industry is using to sell you something, whether it's their products, their program, and they're promising results. The vegan diet, on the other hand, is really a lifestyle, and it's something that's not really promising results. Rather, it's promising a lifestyle, and that's a very different thing. So we're really looking at the overall lifestyle as opposed to the diet itself. So here are four things I recommend before jumping on the next diet train. And here's we're getting all geared up now because we are going into holiday season, which is filled with food, lots of food everywhere, drinking, parties, like all of it, right? Which is so interesting to me because it's like diet culture pushes that and then they like want to sell us all the diet stuff come January 1st. It's like they know our trend and they're onto us. And I think breaking down these diets, I wanted to do this now just because we're gearing up for January and I want you guys going into January educated, empowered, and making sustainable nutrition changes as opposed to like starting keto for two months and then being a part of the statistics, which is most people don't stick with New Year's resolutions past 21 days. Here are four things to try before a diet. Number one, balance your carb intake. Not too much, not too little. I call it Goldilocks goals when it comes to carbs. The American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics recommends between 45 and 65% of the diet being made up of carbohydrates. This is sustainable. There was a landmark study done on nearly half a million people who found that those who ate just the right, so between that 45 and 65% of their diet from carbohydrates, lived longer. I love that. I totally reduce that and say, so therefore you're saying if I eat my bagel, I'll live longer and be happier. I'm down with that. (laughs) Number two, increase your fruits and veggies. 80% of Americans do not eat the recommended amount of veggies and 60% don't eat the recommended amount of fruits. Guys, I would be lying if I said I did that easily. I have to work to not be a part of this statistic. This is why I like the fuel plan thing that I do, which is the bubbles. 
You guys have heard me talk about this before because it gives me like a target. I'm like, all right, go, Jess. You need four veggies today. You need three fruits. Hit it. Go. Because I just don't intuitively do that. I just, I don't love me some carrots like I love me some bagels. <laughs> the USDA recommends five to nine servings of fruits and veggies a day. And I get if you're far away from that five to nine, okay, no big deal. Let's start with where you're at and increase by two. And guys, I have to cyclically do this <laughs> because I go through seasons where all of a sudden I'm eating like one veggie and fruit a day again. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel very good. Gee, I wonder why. You know, I'm eating more bagels than I am fruits and carrots. <laughs> and so I got to rebalance it. But instead of jumping right up to that five to nine servings, I inch towards it. So I'll start with three servings a day, trying to get one at every meal. And then I'll add in a snack and then I'll add in another snack and then I'll double a serving at dinner. So I inch towards that higher recommendation rather than just trying to jump there right away. The main reason for that is one, if you do it too quick, you will have the stinkiest, most toxic farts, as my, my little boy says. <laughs> toxic fart syndrome happens when you jump it too fast. But also, it doesn't feel good. Like you need to work your stomach up to that fiber load. You need to stretch your stomach out a little bit because the volumetrics of fruits and veggies is so much higher. And then it's sustainable because you feel empowered rather than defeated. Like how the heck am I going to maintain you know, seven servings of fruits and veggies a day? If you walk towards that, it's really sustainable, but jumping from like one to seven is just, I think it's setting us up for failure. So inch towards it, increase by two a day. Number three, hit your protein targets. Aim for 20 to 40 grams of protein per meal. That's per meal. Americans tend to struggle more with that at breakfast than any other meal. We do great at dinner, but let's see if we can hit at least 20 grams every single meal out of the day. And then number four, Last but definitely not least is listen to your biofeedback. What does your body say about the food you are eating? When you go on keto and your body is literally rejecting the idea of burning fat as fuel because you have keto flu, should we listen to that? If we're looking at sustainability and adhering to a nutrition philosophy that's going to carry us for the long run, shouldn't we consider what our body has to say about it? If you follow intermittent fasting, this this happens to me all the time. My husband loves intermittent fasting. It works for him. But, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll do it with you. I get distracted. I see squirrels all the time. <laughs> but then my PMS week comes, and I'm starving. I wake up at like 3 in the morning so hungry. You would think I hadn't eaten for weeks. And it's hormonal. So what does my body say there? Do I sit in bed so hungry just thinking about my stomach growling? Because in my head, I'm telling in my body, oh, no, you can't eat. It's not 11 a.m. You're intermittent fasting. No. I listen to my body. See what your body says about the diet and the lifestyle you're adhering to. When you up your fruits and veggies, what does your body say about that? Aside from the toxic farts, <laughs> chances are you probably have a lot more energy. Your gut feels better. When our gut feels better, our brain feels better. We don't have brain fog. And guys, this biofeedback really feeds in the whole nutrition philosophy and the empowered eating model, which is overlapping your internal awareness or your biofeedback with nutrition knowledge, which is what we're doing here, and your values. We didn't touch on values today too much other than asking, like, can I go to happy hour? I guess we did touch on values. What am I talking about? Yes. So that's the whole empowered eating model. And we're tying it all back together with that biofeedback. What does your body say about the food you guys are eating? Guys, I hope this rubric helps you evaluate diets as they start popping up on your social media in the next few months because they're going to start now. They're going to start hitting us with these diet things 
like right around Thanksgiving when all the food is everywhere and we're hungry and we're feeling icky in our body because we're totally overate on mashed potatoes and gravy, they're going to start hitting us with those ads then and there. And I want you to be able to see those and break them down and really think about them logically instead of like emotionally being pulled to them because you're in a place of vulnerability or insecurity and they're exploiting that, trying to sell you something. So I hope you feel empowered today. Use this rubric. When you're looking at a new diet, first step, try the four things before you jump on the diet bandwagon. Those four things are balance your carb intake, hit your protein, which is at least 20 grams of protein per meal, up your fruit and veggie intake, and try what your body's saying. So listen to biofeedback. Try those four things first, and then use our grading rubric to dissect whether or not the diet is something that is sustainable and that you can stick to for the long run. Does it improve your nutritional status? Does it improve or influence your microbiome in a healthy way? And can you go to happy hour and stay on that diet? I hope you ladies have a wonderful day today. Double cheers, because we're talking about happy hour. Also, it's October. All my favorite Oktoberfest beers are out in the world, and it makes me so happy. (laughs) So double cheers and happy eating. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope it strengthened your food journey and empowered you to live boldly in your body. Real quick, sister, before you go, if you liked today's episode, the best way you can thank me is head on over to iTunes, Fuel Her Awesome Podcast, leave a review and subscribe. Then take a screenshot and share it on your social media. Don't forget to tag me at JessBrownRD. And if you're looking for more resources, be sure to check out my website, JessBrownRD.com. I've got info on my e-course, Fuel Her Awesome Food Foundations, my 10-step ebook on how to beat body bullying, and so much more. I cannot wait to chat with you babes again. Until next time, cheers and happy eating.